Heavenly Father, we thank you. We stand in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was pronounced worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we don't deserve it, but we are so thankful for him and for everything he means to us. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. My daughter, for my birthday, sent me a card. And the card says just this. Old is just like young, only better. Now, you, it depends on which degree of decomp... I mean, um, of... Um, of maturity you're in as to how you receive that, right? Um, but you know what? I, when I think about it and I think about what I was like when I was 20, I would not want to go back there at all. It is so much better. Even with the aches and pains and all that stuff, I would not want to go back to 20. I, I didn't even like being back then. So there is something good about having more experience and more maturity. Uh, I went, one time I remember seeing this thing on TV. It was a lumberjack Olympics of some sort. It was weird, right? And uh, even from Wisconsin, it seemed weird to me. And I was a city boy, and there were actually there were, that there were people who actually climbed poles and trees and chopped down trees. Uh, you know. So at any rate, this is what this is the competition, though. It was they had to climb this huge pole. Two guys. They had to next to each other, climbing this huge pole. And then once it got to the top, they rang a bell, and then they came all the way down, grabbed axes, and the end of the competition was who would be able to bring down their pole the quickest. And so I'm watching this going, you know, this is just like, these are supermen. And the thing was, one guy uh, was like this 20-something guy with huge arms. And I mean, he... I mean, he looked daunting. The guy next to him wasn't bad either, but clearly in his 40s. You know, so like in most sports, way over the hill, right? And so I'm looking and I'm thinking, how badly is the young guy going to beat the old guy? Right? So in the little bit of thing, you know, they always do the run-up on who these people are. And so in the little bit of them talking about him, the old guy had actually trained the young guy and it's like oh man is he dead now right and so they they go for it and they they put their straps around the the pole and they're both going up the pole i mean it i I don't know if a squirrel could have gotten up there quicker they got up there they rang the bell almost at the same time and they're both coming down you can't do a free fall you know otherwise there are other things that go out and so they get down at the bottom and they both grab axes, and they're going at the tree. And I mean, these are like men's men hitting this tree with axes. I mean, huge chunks of wood are flying off of the thing. And all of a sudden, the old guy runs around the other side, and he starts hacking at it. Well, the young guy sees the old guy hacking at the tree, and he runs around the other side. But no sooner does he get there, and the old guy runs around the tree on the other side, where he's been beating on it before, and he, he gets done there. And then... I can't remember if the young guy followed him or not, but what happened was the old guy brought down his tree quicker or pole quicker. And so as they were doing the interview, they said to him, they said, so what did you do? And he said, well, I, you know, I trained him. I knew what he could do. 
So I thought the only way I was going to be able to beat him would be to shake him up. Do something that he wasn't expecting. So he said, I went to the other side of the tree and, and it just broke his concentration. He didn't know what I was doing. So he goes to the other side of the tree and he's never done that before that quickly because you just have a feel. And so then I went around and I finished it up the way you're supposed to. And I just thought to myself, that's brilliant because the young guy clearly could have beaten him, but he didn't have the experience there was something hap- that happened in all of this that shook him up, shook his confidence, helped him lose his focus, and he wasn't able to do the job. And the, young, the old guy beat him just from having more experience. And, you know, when we're looking at this book of Thessalonians, we're coming in 2 Thessalonians to something that we haven't seen yet. In 1 Thessalonians, this is a vibrant, strong group of people, young believers facing persecution, but their, their faith is such that even Paul is amazed at what they're able to do under this persecution. But what they don't have is experience. You know, there is something about, I don't know what it was like for you when you discovered all of this stuff and realized that your sins had been forgiven. I mean, you know, it's just like the world is open now, right? And you charge, I charged into it full bore. I was ready to give my life and, and keep on giving and everything. Um, and that youthful experience gets you so far. And then, you know, they, they say the word dis, uh, disillusionment is a good word because it means getting rid of your illusions. But for most people, it just means slowing down. Because we start meeting things we don't have the experience to deal with. That's why I think discipleship is such an important thing. Well, when you get to 2 Thessalonians now, these new believers have been shaken. And it is messing them up. And I think what Paul is going to write here is he's going to try to put some of these things in order. Because some of what shook them up had to do with the Lord's return. And it made them unsure. It broke their focus. It took away their strength. It took away their courage. And so Paul is having to go back in, and he's having to do some work with them. Now, for us, who have been around the block more than one time, what, is, what would this message mean to us? And what I'm hoping it means is picking up uh, some of our zeal. Because the thing is, All of the teaching about the Lord's return has been given to us at a certain time in a certain way to keep us strong and vibrant and hopeful and active. But our situation is that, and maybe it's because we don't have these people with this kind of experience like the Apostle Paul had, because I, I think that he was just the guy... Um, who was totally consumed with Jesus Christ. But what I mean is that there was nothing that made Paul give up. And you look at his life, there were, there were a lot of things that should have made Paul give up. But the fact that he had this vibrant hope in the return of Jesus Christ really, really meant something. And so what Paul is doing in this letter in Second Thessalonians is he's trying to bring these people back to stability, but not just stability and saying, see, you guys took that too far. It's like, no. Here's what, here's what it really is. Now, here's why you can ramp it up again. And that's what we'll be looking at and see what the Lord brings us in this message. I have a slide, and I'm going to be referring to this pretty much all the way through here. 
uh, with regard to the day of the Lord and the Lord's return. You know, one of the things, and I'll just say this being the first point, and this is what they're shaking on. Look at, look at what it says in verse 1 and 2. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, We'll kind of look at what, what he's talking about here, but as you're looking at this, I, I know some of these things make sense to you. I mean, you've seen charts like this before. But here's the thing. I think the Lord really wants us to know what's going to happen. I mean, that's why the book of Revelation is there, and that's why Jesus said something in Matthew 24, and that's why Jesus said something in Luke 17, and that's why Paul is filling these things out, and he's talking about the mystery that has been revealed to us. I think God wants us to know this information. But here is the thing, and this is sort of generally speaking for everyone. You have to read several parts of the Bible to get this. It's just not in one place. And you've got to put it together. You know, like when we look at the people listening to Jesus's parables, sometimes we think, you know, what was wrong with them? Why didn't they get that? Why did Jesus even speak to them in parables? And the disciples asked them that too. The way it works around is this. If you want to understand more, God's not going to force feed you, but if you want to understand more, put some of your, more of your heart into it. To him who has understanding, to him who seeks, they will definitely find. And I think Jesus, the Holy Spirit, has intentionally placed things in different places in the New Testament to see if we're willing to read them and we're willing to put them together. Because whatever was discovered back in the early 1800s that the brethren latched onto, it became a huge fire. I mean, it was an amazing thing. It gave generations hope. Now, we have allowed that to erode in the United States in the last, oh, 40, 50 years. But it is still vibrant truth that changes people's lives, that keeps people active. But here's the thing. First, for the Thessalonians, for us, you've got to be sure about the facts of the Lord's return. You've just got to be sure about them. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to run through this list, and I'm going to do it in a couple of different ways. I'm going to do it fairly quickly, but you'll be able to follow along. And I want to show you that even within certain things where the Lord is giving details here, he mixes them up a little bit. Do you have a tolerance for that? Are you willing to go with the Lord and have to focus on what he's saying and, and how he mixes them up? So, turn in your Bibles... To Matthew 24, you know this is the Olivet Discourse, right? And we'll just look at some of the things that Jesus says here and how he's referring to different things and making the disciples aware of things that are going to happen. Now, when they come to him in verse 3, they say to him, tell us, when will this be? He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Now, he's talking about the close of the age. What is the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Okay, so he's talking about, actually, events that happen kind of at the end. What is the sign of your coming 
and the close of the age. That's what he's referring to. So Jesus starts up and he says, you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. Uh, He says, but don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. And then he says, you're going to hear of uh, kingdoms rising against kingdoms and everything. He said, these are but the birth pangs. So now he's talking about the beginning. This day of the Lord that we know about is all seven years of Daniel's 70th year. It's going to, we, most people here understand it's going to be seven years. Okay, Before this starts, there are going to be things that are going to get your attention, that are going to put you on edge. Jesus says, don't be shaken by them. Don't be alarmed. You know, people ask, well, why do we have to go through COVID? Why do we have to go through COVID? Maybe God is just wanting to get our attention. So we pray a little more fervently. What about the stuff in the Ukraine? I don't know. But it's the first time in my lifetime we've seen anything like this. And what would be the result of it? I think Jesus is saying that. These are just the beginning. Does this mean it's going to happen in our lifetime? No clue. But it's something that God does maybe to wake us up and make us a little bit more aware that there are things happening here. So we have these seven years right in here. It's called Daniel's 70 weeks. It's called the days of the Son of Man. We'll see that. So Jesus says, you're going to have these things happen here. And then he says, they're going to, in verse 9, they're going to deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Now, when we go to the text in Second Thessalonians, you're going to see those things there. But Jesus is already talking about them. But see, that is happening on this side. Because uh, has there ever been a time when people who believe in Jesus have been hated by all nations? No, that doesn't happen yet. And the, many will fall away. It'll be very unpopular to be someone who calls themselves by the name of Jesus Christ, that hasn't quite happened yet. So he's talking about things that are going to happen once the tribulation begins. He talks about false prophets. He talks about people's hearts growing cold and everything. You get to verse 15, and he says, So when you see the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel, this would be the Antichrist. He says, Flee to the mountains. Get out of Dodge quickly. And that, of course, we know, is right here in the middle, right? This is when the Antichrist will break the covenant with Israel, and he will go after them. There are a lot of things in Revelation. Revelation is basically a very orderly, chronological display of what's going to happen during the tribulation. But let me go into some things right here. We know, Jesus isn't going to mention them, that during the first half of the tribulation, there are going to be two witnesses in Jerusalem. They are basically going to be the ones who call this down. The whole world will celebrate when the Antichrist kills him right here at the beginning. That will give him the power to walk into the temple and say, I am the king. I am God, whatever he says at that point. But during this first half, there's also 144,000 Jews who I believe become witnesses to the world. In chapter 7, you see them, and it says, it looks at as a result of their ministry, there there are myriads of people who come to Christ as a result of that. During the first half, particularly, of 
the day of the Lord. Okay, and so you've got the two witnesses who are occupying everybody's attention, but because of that, I think this is giving the 144,000 a great field to work in. Once they're dead, Satan brings his two people out. So you have here, I'm really bad at alliteration, these would be like the angelic amigos, and these are the demonic duo here, right? So he copies them, basically. Satan is copying them. You like the two guys before? I got, I got something better in mind for you. These guys come. This becomes the great tribulation. It also becomes the mystery of lawlessness. This is what made Daniel sick when he saw this vision. This is what upset John, is to see that Jesus is going to offer up his people like sheep led to the slaughter as evidence that the world is fully ripe for judgment. That's why in Revelation chapter 12, it says, after Satan is thrown down, it says that they defeated him by the testimony of the Lamb and by their own blood, because they loved not their lives even unto unto death. They stand up for the, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan has taken them down, but they are defeated because... They're willing to give up their lives for Christ. So, another way to refer to this period here is Jesus says it is the hour of trial that's coming over the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So it's coming over the whole world. There has never been a tribulation in the past that came over the whole world that affected the people in Indonesia, up in the mountains of Colta and Ecuador, or any other place, this will come over the whole world because, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, the physical effects of what happened, happens, devastate the world. And everybody is totally affected, and it will try all those who dwell upon the earth. So, back to uh, Matthew 24 really quick. Verse 27, answering the question of the disciples what is the sign how do we know that you didn't come this kind of what's influencing the thessalonians how do we know you didn't come what if somebody says hey he's out in the desert jesus says don't go out there or he's in the inner rooms he's over at the the hyatt regency don't go there here's where the sign is for as the lightning flashes in the east and lights up the sky, even to the west, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Everyone will see it. All eyes will see it. It will be in the skies. And that's why it even says here, verse 28, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now, that expression only ever meant one thing. If you were looking over an expanse of land and wondered where the dead body was, it would take you forever to find it. All you had to do was look up in the sky. The sign was in the sky you would see vultures circling. And that's where it was. That's all that illustration means. It has nothing to do with judgment. I mean, I've read guys who have said, it just means look up. Everyone will see it. No one will miss it. And that's what the Thessalonians were kind of wondering about. And then it says in verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, this is his coming here. When it, when it talks about Jesus coming with a light and sound show, with his angels and 
and all of this stuff and his elect, it is only ever talking about this here. And now here's the thing. The people he is gathering are living people. And they are untranslated people. Untranslated meaning that they haven't been given uh, resurrection bodies. They're just people who are still living on the earth. And they, they're taken living. They are brought with him living. And that's how they, they are. The first resurrection doesn't happen until after Jesus comes. That's right here. That's in Revelation 24. That's when the, everybody who's died during the tribulation will be raised. And that's where they think the Old Testament saints will be raised. So what's happening here is Jesus is coming with all his believers who are still alive on the earth. And some people believe it's still 144,000. And they come to Jerusalem. Now, we might be with them, but we're talking about something different here when we talk about our coming with him. Because when this happens, the Old Testament saints and the martyrs of the tribulation, that happens actually the way it's written after Jesus returns. Okay, so then Jesus starts over in verse 36, and that's really the only reason I wanted to get to that. But of this day and hour, no one knows. Of this day and hour is not talking about this. Now he's talking about this. He's talking about the beginning. The idea is that once the the day of the Lord starts, once Daniel's 70th week starts, once the days of the Son of Man begin, nothing on earth will be normal. You thought it was bad during COVID? Uh, You look at the content of those first seals and you realize the earth loses a quarter of its population. That's a big hit. And when you think about what happens in the rapture, that's an even bigger hit along with that. You're going to lose a lot of infrastructure in the world very quickly. The world will never return to normal until those seven years are done. And so he gives them these thoughts It'll be like a thief in the night. No one will be aware of its coming. He says, but you need to be ready. You need to be observant. And this is what we know as believers, right? That Paul says we are to look expectantly for his return. Looking for our blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wrote that to Titus. Since then, we have been supposedly looking for his return every day. Now, Luke 17, let's see, is there something I really need to pull out of here? Oh yeah, there is, actually. Because he kind of says this uh, in Matthew 24, but the thing I want to draw your attention to in Luke 17 is verse 34. It says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One is taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding, actually it doesn't, actually say women, but there will be two grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Okay, so a lot of people, especially people who don't like the pre-trib rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture, they, I'm not actually sure what they believe in a positive sense, but I know they don't like the idea of the Lord rapturing the church. But when they look at this, they say, well, this means judgment. Uh, And it has nothing to do with the rapture. But the point is, is that it's kind of unusual the way Jesus says it, because this is what he says. He says, I tell you, in that night, that time you're not expecting when the Lord comes, there'll be two in one bed, one's taken, the other's left. He's not talking about the end. 
He's talking about the very beginning when this thing happens. And then he says, there'll be two people out working together, one's taken, one's left. And the disciples go, where? I, like we would, where are they taken? And Jesus says, where the body is, there the eagles will be gathered. That only means one thing, look up. They will be taken up. And this is going to come at a time when nobody's expecting it. Once you get through uh, the first three and a half years of the, um, uh, the tribulation, you can basically set your watch. By the, from the time that the Antichrist walks into the temple to the time that he leaves, or to the time Jesus comes, you know it's three and, a, three and a half years. It actually says it how many days it is. People... The saints on earth will be expecting this. They will be looking for it. Nobody is looking for this part here. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. So, you know, many of you know these things. You've seen them in Sunday school classes before. But the idea is keeping them straight, being sure of the facts. And that's where uh, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians, and he says... Don't let anybody shake you up, no matter who they are, no matter what theological seminary they're from, no matter what they think they've got under their belt, because here are the things that have to happen for this to, to come in. It kind of defines what they were afraid of. So Paul starts out and he says, concerning the coming of our Lord and our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or word or letting purporting to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord, all of this has come. So when Paul starts giving the details of what they were shaky about, uh, look at verse 3. It says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. What Paul is actually pointing to is this here. He says, have you seen that happen? It hasn't happened. The rebellion, as I understand it, doesn't happen until after the tribulation begins. Jesus even says it like that. They will deliver you up to tribulation and you will be put to death for my name's sake. This is that worldwide hate that he's talking about. And that's going to cause a lot of people to defect. Very easy to believe in Jesus when everything's sunny, but not so much when everything's going bad. So he talks about the Antichrist proclaiming himself to be God. And he says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this? And you know that what is restraining him, you know what is restraining him now so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. They were seeing persecution happen. But Paul is saying that is not this. It isn't worldwide. It doesn't feel good. But you need to, just like the Apostle John in his three letters is always talking about the Antichrist. We see the spirit of the Antichrist. But not the Antichrist. How will you know who the Antichrist is? He will be the guy who gets on the throne. He will be the guy who breaks that covenant. And then he will be the one who works with the false prophet. Now, I think that even in the first half of the 
tribulation, that might even be up to doubt. That's why it says in those very cryptic words, he who has a mind to understand, let him understand this. The number of his name is 666. That's to help the people in the tribulation figure out who he is. Once you get to the middle of the tribulation, you don't need 666 anymore. You just know who he is. So what Paul is referring to, all of these things, is to show them that this point has not come yet. The, uh, in verse 11, where it talks, or 10, where it talks about the wicked deception for those who are to perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends upon them a strong uh, delusion. It says, these two guys are going to do huge signs and wonders. I mean, amazing things. So powerful that if possible, they would make the elect actually believe that they were the true, the true ones. It's going to be, so anybody who has their heart inclined to not believe in Jesus, they are going to be totally overwhelmed by the signs and wonders that the Antichrist and his prophet are able to perform. But where I want to camp out is this. Now, so, so what Paul is doing is he's giving them all of this information right here. He's already given it to them. Because they needed the hope because they were suffering. But when Paul talks in the beginning in verse 1, he says, Now concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, he's talking about something different. He's talking about, and this is where you have to go to other portions of the Bible. You go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the archangel's call and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Nobody rises until right here. Where did the dead in Christ arise in this whole scheme? They arise right here. Then we who are alive and left shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. Some people think that the church is going to be assembled right here. There's not going to be a translation of people right here. These people are all alive and they go into the millennial kingdom at that point. Then comes the judging of the sheep and the goats and all of that. Those are alive people. The ones who are judged as being worthy to enter into the millennial kingdom, the ones that are judged worthy not to enter into the millennial kingdom. These are all alive people. If the Lord translated everybody right here, there would be no real believers. They would all be translated already. They'd all have resurrection body. The only place that that happens is right here. And Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first. Those people who have become part of this nation that God is making during this time when God has given the message to the Gentiles, they are the church and the church will be taken. And then if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 51, lo, I tell you a mystery, something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. And as Paul is standing there, he is letting them know this is a truth for right now. You've got to grasp this thing. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Everyone who belongs to Christ who's in the church will all be changed. They won't make it to this place here for the first resurrection. They will all be changed before they get there. In, the mo- in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We will have resurrection bodies, and we will always be with the Lord. And if you follow the book of Revelation, you realize that the marriage supper of the Lamb happens in heaven right before this. And when he comes, we get to come with him. And he will gather all of his angels and he will gather all of the living saints on earth and they all go to Jerusalem and save those people that are in there at that time. He touches down on the Mount of Olives and then turns his attention northward to go to Armageddon. So, the assembling of ourselves to the Lord that he's talking about in Thessalonians only happens right here. And you know what's interesting is the uh, Revelation 3.10, I only put half of the verse up there. Because when he's speaking to the church at Philadelphia, he says, because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you out of the hour of trial that is coming over the whole world to try all those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is promising them and to all the churches because those letters are written to all the churches, you will not enter into this day of wrath. Kind of pretty cool stuff. Now, let me give you a couple of quick applications here. I think what Paul is saying to these people is he's saying, you need to be sure about the facts. You need to be very sure about the facts. Because otherwise... People are always going to be coming in. People from other schools, you know, in our day and age, people from other schools, from other churches, from every... This is okay. You know, we talk, some people talk about the rapture. They talk about the day of the Lord and all this, and they say, well, you know, we really don't know because we don't have very many verses. How many? I did this with the youth. How many verses are there in the Old Testament regarding the virgin birth of Christ? And I go to the youth, I go, how many people say there are maybe about five? No hands. They knew I was tricking them. They're smart. Okay, how many people think there are at least two verses in the Old Testament that say Jesus be born of a virgin? No hands. And then I say, how many people think there are one, there's one verse in the whole Old Testament that says Jesus be born of a virgin? They still didn't raise their hands. They thought I was trying to trick them on that too. There's one verse. 4,000 years between Adam and Eve and Jesus... Where does that verse come in? In about the last 700 years. Pretty small. I mean, pretty late, right? Is it, would it be okay for God? I mean, if we allow God to be God, to give us this information at a later time when it maybe is more meaningful to us, maybe bring it and burst it into life in the 1800s, I think it would be okay. I mean, he is God after all. But we have those verses there. It's just that you couldn't believe in them beforehand. We need to be sure about what the Bible is telling us. And our problem is we have gone so long without this being a dire need for us as believers that we, like everyone else out there, have just fallen asleep on this. And then something like COVID comes along, something like 
the Ukraine comes along, we're kind of fighting in our minds. Yeah, he's coming back, but what does all that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. I think he wants us to be stirred and not shaken. Opposite of James Bond's drink. He wants us to be stirred, not shaken. He says not to be shaken. That's what he's telling them. He wants us to be stirred. He wants us to be excited. He wants us to have that sense of expectation that he's coming back. You know, and it's just the thing, we in our culture as believers, this meant so much earlier in the 1900s than it does today. Because of our iPhones and our comforts and all the stuff that our lives have been inundated with. Let me tell you about a church, a nameless church here. You know, Moody and uh, Schofield and Schaefer, they brought all this stuff over from, from England and Moody was the first. I'm reading about his life right now, and I am amazed at how much I didn't know about him, how much I did not esteem him as being like a very, very important figure. But anyway, so uh, 1920s. Uh, It says, during the 1920s, the talk in most religious circles across America was the second coming of Jesus Christ. It seemed as if people couldn't get enough of this exciting biblical doctrine. Churches everywhere were being forced to examine the facts of the second coming and then take a stand either for or against this teaching of Scripture. So, the Methodist Church formed a council to answer the question, should the second coming of Jesus Christ as a future event be taught from their pulpits? The Methodist Church Council ruled that the second coming of Jesus Christ as a future event was not to be preached by its preachers. It was just foreign. It was cultish. It was uh, just not accepted. They hadn't done, the church just had not been focused on this or teaching about it for years. And so there was an uproar in this one particular church. And it said, when was this? This was 1927. The friction became so intense that the pastor of the Methodist church finally told five families publicly from the pulpit to get out and leave them alone. Just during the message, he said, get out of church. And they went. And they formed another church. But here's the exciting thing about that. It didn't, it didn't wound them at all. Because they were so convinced about the Lord's coming and they believed it was important. What was 1927? You had the Spanish flu in 1917, and that took a couple of years. And then you had World War I. And you still had the walking wounded from World War I. You had a nation that was struggling in its economy. They didn't know in 1928 that in a couple of years they were going to have the Depression. They didn't know in 1928 that in eight years, Herr Hitler would take the reins in Germany. It made a difference that Jesus Christ was coming back. They were stirred. They believed this was a vital doctrine. And the thing about that is it takes all the prophecy in the Bible and it just rips it open. It just it, it becomes like a refreshing breeze of life to understand in a clear, grammatical, common sense way that God has arranged all of this to happen. And you know what's so interesting about this? They formed a church and... 
central to their church uh, at the beginning were evangelistic services. So they started with evangelistic services in the tent. When they finally started meeting every week, their Sunday evening ser- Well, I need to explain that for some of you young ones. It used to be that churches would meet on Sunday evening. And they were all evangelistic. This presupposes that you actually have friends who are lost people who you can invite. Because it really is boring trying to preach the gospel to those who are already convinced. You know, it does, it does you like no good. You can't even work up a lather. But they had friends who needed to hear this. They didn't know they were heading into the Depression. They didn't know they were heading into World War II. And what a blessing that was for them. So, you got to be sure about the facts and you have to be stirred by the facts. And then you just, in the heat of it all, you've got to be stable, steadfast, firm in these facts. Because the thing is, is, you know, somebody can say, well, it's been a couple thousand years and he hasn't come back yet, but that's okay. He gave us that doctrine to expect him every day, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he's talking to the disciples, he says, you need to live every minute with your lamps burning and your loins girded, ready to head to the door as soon as your master knocks. It's like, there's a competition. This is the Olympics. We are all here. We're looking at this door. As soon as he knocks, who can be the, who can be the first to the door? That's what we want to be. We want to be so ready for him. But it isn't just that. It's going through a life that's disappointing. Are things going to turn in the United States? They very well could. I mean, it has nothing to do with COVID. It has nothing to do with what the Russians are doing in the Ukraine. We have seen it building up here. That truth becomes more and more the property of the privileged, the property of those who are in control. And if you're not in control and if you don't hold to the line... You don't say the right thing. Well, where does that put us as believers? Eventually, that's going to put us in the wrong place too, isn't it? Are we going to be able to carry the torch and the, the witness of the word and the testimony of Jesus Christ into the future? Are we going to get cowed? Or are we going to lose our courage and just not do it and just give up? Well, in Moody's Crusades, one of the songs that they used to love to sing was written by a guy named Philip Bliss. And it's called Hold the Fort. Hmm. Hold the Fort. What a weird kind of song. Oh, my comrades, see the signal waving in the sky. Reinforcements now appearing. Victory is nigh. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus signals still. Wave the answer back to heaven. By thy grace we will. Now, the legend behind the writing of that has to do with the battle during the Civil War, where there was an important union supply depot that was under going to be under attack and so it was guarded by 2,000 guys in the general course I'm giving you all this information but anyway and then General French came and he had over 3,000 guys and the thing was that the South desperately needed to take those supplies they needed to cut off the Union supply line and they could have done it they could have done it. with Four times they came within 100 yards of getting where they needed to be, and they were pushed back. But 
as this was happening, these guys are looking over the tree line and they see flags sticking up. I didn't even know you could communicate with flags. So anyway, they see these flags and the flags are saying this. This is from General Sherman. Hold the fort. Reinforcements are on the way. So anyway, it, in, it inspired Philip Bliss and definitely inspired General Corse's men. In that battle, there's only 5,000-some men. Within two days, they lost 1,600 men. A full third of the people who were fighting there. I mean, there was blood on those mountains. But they held the fort. And here's the, here's the other part of it. The reinforcements never got there before General French gave up. He thought that he he thought they were coming too. This is taking way too long. This is supposed to be an easy battle, and so they gave up and they went away. These guys held the fort without the other reinforcements ever getting there. It's the heart. It's the heart of hope, and that's what's so important about us holding fast to the Lord's coming. He just says, "I'm coming." You don't know when. We know all this about heaven. We know that we're saved. We just need to hold the fort. We need to stand strong and stable in the fact that Jesus indeed has won the day and he's coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us here uh, to fall asleep. You have not left us here without hope. Not only is our Savior worthy, and there's that day that all of that that we read in Revelation 5 is going to come true, but there is a value for us cherishing every day that he has promised to come. There is a value every day of knowing that this battle has been won and that we have exactly what the world needs, even as the life is fading from our bodies. We can tell them about Jesus Christ and they can be saved so that they can appear with him and know him. So we thank you. We thank you for the excitement of that. We pray that particularly in this time, you would allow us to be stirred, but not shaken, because our Lord is indeed returning. Amen.